Welcome to Sistery History, the podcast where we two sisters discuss a historical event or experience, but instead of facts and figures, we focus on the senses to offer a different perspective on things. In each episode, we'll take a few historical primary sources and have a light-hearted chat about sounds, smells, tastes. You get the idea. I'm Big Sister Laura. I'm Little Sister Caroline. We hope you'll find out something interesting you didn't know before, or perhaps you'll think about something in a slightly different way. But mostly, we'd love you to have fun. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1, Talking with the Gods. The Greeks liked to consult their gods on all sorts of matters, the public and the private, the mundane to the more significant. In the evidence, we see queries about health, love and travel, but we also find kings soliciting advice on whether to wage war and politicians in want of strategic guidance. From all this, we can reasonably conclude that divination, i.e. seeking knowledge of the future, was pretty big business. So how did people go about it? Maybe you're familiar with the old favourites, fortune telling, dream interpretation, but what about divination via smoke, water or birds? Let's have a look at some of the weird and wonderful options that were available to your average Greek. Before we do that though, Laura, what do you think our sources today would think of our new logo? Ah, a fabulous question. I think they would be pleased that we've kept the neon colouring. Neon was big in ancient Greece. It really was. And also, I think they would have thought it prudent that we've included a tagline to explain a little bit about what we do. With that in mind, who do we have today? Aha. We have three chaps joining us today. We have Euripides, writer of tragic poems and plays. He was an Athenian, seems to have been quite a solitary chap. We can't find out too much about his private life. And he was writing in the 5th century BCE. We've also got Aristophanes, who was a comic poet and playwright, again, Athenian. And we don't know much about him, but he does seem to be not very keen on oracle mongers, which we'll find out about a little bit later on. He was also active in the 5th century BCE. And finally today, we've both got extracts from Plato, who was a philosopher living in Athens from a noble family. He was a friend and pupil of Socrates, who we'll meet later in the series, and he was active in the 4th century BCE. So all in the classical Greek period that we're focusing on this season. Three Athenian lads joining us on our jaunt up Mount Parnassus. Indeed. Carolina, do you want to go first today? I will actually. I'm going to use Euripides. This is an extract from his play Ion, which is set at the Oracle in Delphi. This is Euripides Ion, lines 80 to 125. I'm going to close my eyes and really transport myself there. Smoke of Arabian frankincense streams upwards to the temple's height. Parnassus's pathless peaks grow bright with welcome to the newborn day. Servants of Delphi and Apollo, go to the Castalian Spring, wash in its silvery eddies and return cleansed to the temple. Now I will sweep the temple, my duty here since childhood, with a broom of laurel branches and purify the entrance with holy wreaths of flowers, sprinkle the floor with water and with my bow and arrows I'll send the wild birds flying that foul our temple treasures. Come little broom of fresh and lovely leaves gathered from the immortal laurel groves, Come, my broom, used for Apollo's sacred hearth within, used for the cleansing of this holy floor, 
When the swift sun wings the morning sky, this ritual task I offer to Apollo. Well, it sounded lovely until the point he got his bow and arrow out and started shooting the birds. <laughs> You've got to keep the birds away. And this is part of it, isn't it? The sense that I want to consider here, you may have guessed. Any ideas? I was going to say smell. It is smell. Oh, okay. What we're discussing here is the preparation of getting the temple ready in the morning. The character there is Ion speaking. He works at the Temple of Apollo. He describes many smell-related things. The Arabian frankincense burning from the temple, the smoke rising up, the washed bodies. He tells, he tells the Adelphic attendants to go and wash. It's because they smelled? No, because you've got to be pure and fresh for the daily worship of Apollo. Okay. The laurel leaves in the broom, the motion of using the broom would spread the smell around. That's oh, nice. Laurel has a sweet, it's kind of spicy, warm, but also fresh smell. <laughs> All of the things. It's a bit earthy. It's quite a unique smell, laurel. The motion would spread the smell through the air. Okay. He also mentions the wreaths of flowers that decorate the outside of the temple, so they would be quite fragrant, mm -hmm. sweet-smelling. And then water to purify the floor outside the temple. Again, cleansing, fresh smelling, but also would stop dust. You know, sometimes in hot countries, use water outside houses or on markets to stop the dust from going over everything. Oh, okay. Yes. So would it just be normal fresh water? It wouldn't be scented necessarily? This is water from the Castalian Spring. So the Castalian Spring is on site at Delphi, okay. sacred spring to Apollo. Springs come up a lot in Apollo's worship. Several of his temples or sanctuaries incorporate springs actually into the temple. Scenic. Quite a feat of engineering, isn't it? But it just does show you the importance of water and connection of these springs with the worship of Apollo. Should we give the listeners a bit of context about Delphi and the site? I think that's a really good idea. So Delphi was a place in central Greece and it was a very sacred site, quite remote and thought by the ancient Greeks and maybe others to be the centre of the world. So it's thought to be very important. The Pythia, who was Apollo's priestess, the god Apollo, she lived there and people made very long journeys from within Greece and from other countries as well to come and consult her as a prophetess or a fortune teller because they believed that they could ask for Apollo's advice and he would speak through her. So she was a very special lady. During the consultation, she sat on a tripod, so a three-pronged stool, effectively. Sounds uncomfortable. It does sound uncomfortable, doesn't it? Over a crack in the ground, some say. Sounds precarious. <laughs> from which fumes were emanating. Sounds uncomfortable again. <laughs> some said that the fumes would intoxicate her and she'd go into a sort of trance. She would give her response to whatever the visitor asked, whatever advice they were seeking, she would respond. And she would answer in confusing speech or riddles or babbling noises, depending on which source you read. And then these would be translated into a verse by attendants who were hanging around at the side. So sort of like a renter poet. And then the visitor would go away and they'd have to interpret that advice as best they could. And it often wasn't as clear as they would like. Well, it's funny you mentioned the setting of Delphi. So it's about 100 miles from Athens on the steep lower slope of Mount Parnassus, mm. which is actually mentioned at the beginning of my extract. 
not much shade in getting there. You'd probably have to hike for maybe a week from Athens. One of the things that happens when you first get there as a pilgrim, or as a visitor to the site, is you have to go and wash in this spring. It sounds like a sensible You'd idea. be smelly, right? Yeah. After a week of hiking. Hiking in, in the Greece sun. in June. Not fun. But once you get there, it's this incredible setting. Very remote. Well, feels remote anyway. Serene, breathtaking views across the valley. You do feel like you are in the presence of some kind of divinity. Do you know what it reminded me of when you were reading at the beginning? Rivendell from Lord of the Rings. Okay. You know yeah. when they got to, when the hobbits got to Rivendell and it was just green oh, and beautiful. It was serene and beautiful flowers. Okay, think Rivendell, but on the side on of a mountain. A mountain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm there. Back to smells. Now you've cleaned yourself, you're not going to smell. The other thing that you picked up on was the birds with the bow and arrows. Yes. Very important to stop birds roosting in the temple. So you don't want bird poo. No. That's not pure. You don't want the smell of bird poo, the look of bird poo. You're trying to keep those birds away because everything has got to be pure because it's sacred. Is that true? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So his job was to shoot at the birds to keep them away. Okay. And sweeping. (laughs) Sweeping, shooting, you know. Visitors would also go away wearing laurel wreaths, so part of their visit, you'd decorate your body with laurel leaves. Therefore, you'd always have this kind of smell association Ah. of visiting this wonderful site, communing with the god, and then you come away and people will recognise where you've been. Oh, okay. Akin to getting a lay when you arrive in Hawaii, maybe? Exactly that. So when you came home from Delphi, if you put your laurel wreath back on, you'd think, yeah, I'm back there. Remember that day? Remember that great day? I was so fresh. Saw that bird die. (laughs) The thing about this, though, that I want to keep on going on about is the immersive experience. It's a purified smell, so everything's fresh and clean. So smell purifies, but is also itself pure. And also the vapours that we, we mentioned, the vapours coming up through the fissure in the ground that the poor Pythia priestess had to sit over on her rickety tripod. They were meant to smell as well, weren't they? So you've got those back into the mix as well. In fact, Plutarch, writing a lot later than our period, but apparently called them a delightful fragrance. A trip to Delphi is certainly an olfactory delight, shall we say. Well, I'll go with that. Did you read anything about water divination? At Delphi? No, just anywhere. Otherwise known as Hydromancy. Mm. One of my favourites. Is it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know you had favourite divination methods. (laughs) Favourite (laughs) mancies. The scenario that I read about was where people would throw a chunk of bread in the water, into a body of water, and the behaviour of the bread would dictate whether your answer was a yes or a no, or whether it was a good or a bad. So if your bread sank then that meant good things. So your omen was good or your answer was yes. If it floated, then that's a no. So you want your bread to sink. Okay. Okay. Well, they should get you to bake it then, Laura. Oh, that's harsh. (laughs) (laughs) Laura Jane, what is your sense? My first sense is taste. The source I'm using is Aristophanes from his play, The Birds. That's a good one. It is a good one. I need to give you some context here because there's a lot going on. 
The Birds is a comic play in which a chap called Pais the Terrace convinces lots of birds to build a new city in the sky and to make themselves into gods. So replace the usual Greek gods with a load of birds. And Pisoterus wants to be Zeus, i.e. the chief god. So it's quite fantastical and you're just going to have to go with it, suspend your disbelief. But at this point in the play, Pisoterus is leading a sacrifice in honour of these new bird gods. And he is being harassed by an oracle monger who turns up uninvited and tries to get involved. Now, oracle mongers were people who would go around and they would have sort of oracles for sale. They would have a collection of oracles which scrolls they could give or, you. Yes, yeah. in a scroll, yeah. like a tray of scrolls or something. Imagine them touting around Athens. So you pick one and then that oracle relates to you or something in yes. some way. Maybe a bit like having your horoscope in the Sunday paper. Mm. <laughs> but he's probably got more than 12. So here we go. I have an oracle for you. On the day that thou shalt sacrifice a tasty ram to the goddess Pandora, to the person who bestows on you this oracle, thou shalt bestow on them a new cloak, new sandals, a bowl of wine, and the cooked meats of the sacrifice, as much as his hands can hold. Pice the Terrace responds to the oracle monger. Funny, your oracle isn't a bit like the one I got from the Temple of Apollo. Listen, but when an impudent scoundrel cometh uninvited, and maketh himself a nuisance, and asketh for a share of the cooked meats, thou shalt hit him hard between the ribs. <laughs> and then the oracle monger promptly gets chucked out. So what we have here is a running joke that we see in Aristophanes' plays, actually. He's not keen on oracle mongers. They get short shrift in many of his works. And the two implications here is that these oracle mongers are on the make, they're out for themselves and a bit greedy, and also that they're a bit fraudulent. This in relation to taste... They are there wanting to literally eat. In the sacrifice that takes place, it would be traditional for whoever performs a divination to then, once the sacrifice is over, meats have been burned and the offerings, etc., have been dealt with, they would take the best portion for themselves. Not just some, the best bits. The best bits, yeah, for their trouble. So this guy is muscling in, trying to say, oh, no, no, I've, I've got an oracle for you. Let me do this. So he wants to take over so that he can then get the choicest bit of the choicest meats. Yes. And the wine. He mentions a bowl of wine because he wants that too. So we can kind of imagine them hanging around, waiting for a sacrifice to happen. Maybe they're even sniffing the sacrifice. His nose is turned up and then running over there, trying to get involved in the sacrifice and then taking over. This guy is asking not only for the food, but he's asking for a cloak and sandals as well. So they're going beyond the greed factor. Do you think he's a real oracle monger? Or do you think he's just pretending to have oracles, but actually they're all just made up? I suppose, actually, that that would be quite an easy thing to do. You could easily pull off that, couldn't you? So if someone's just wandering around with a tray of scrolls, easy enough to write your own. Yeah, you don't know where they came from, do you? No, exactly. Oracle mongers generally seem to have been quite present in society. Some historians suggest that there was a decline in trust of this sort of profession. Well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I don't think we can blame Aristophanes for everything. Well, it doesn't seem like they need to have any evidence at all of where their scrolls no, you come can, from. You can see why there was some dubiousness about their intentions. Turn up, go. nick your food, nick your, nick best your wine, and then skedaddle. Okay, back over to you. There were multiple types of divination in the ancient world. Signs of birds. Ornithomancy. Inspecting entrails. Entrailomancy. <laughs> Hieromancy, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
And for example, being an oracle monger. Yes. Kresmologoi is the word. Yeah, that means collection of oracles, isn't it? Like the, the act of actually collecting lots of them together. And on top of that, there are so many different oracle sites that you could go and visit mm. for various types of divination. Should we go and have a chat with Plato? Let's. He wrote a work called Phaedrus. And from that work, I'm about to read to you extract 275b. Is Phaedrus a person? It is. He is talking to Socrates mm. in this extract. And this is Socrates' voice. There was a tradition in the temple of Dodona that oaks first gave prophetic utterances. The men of old, unlike in their simplicity to young philosophy, deemed that if they heard the truth, even from oak or rock, it was enough for them. Do you want to know what's going on? Yes, please. <laughs> I had my eyes closed. I was really at Dodona. Dodona is a wonderful place to go to. It's another seat of prophecy, mm -hmm. like Delphi. But it wasn't Apollo, was it? No. Very specifically at Dodona, it's Zeus and Dione. Dione. Both of them are worshipped at Dodona jointly. Okay. Now, Zeus, Dio, king of the gods. Mm -hmm. Dione is just a female version of God. So okay. it's God and goddess co-ruling in Good. this sanctuary. I'm glad we've got a bit of equality going on. She also has a connection with being the mother goddess. So very specifically, they are worshipped together. Can I just say, is Hera a little bit annoyed about this? Flagrantly having a temple oracle site with another lady. One of many. Dodona is this beautiful place, northwestern Greece, very fertile, again quite remote, serene setting. It's got these oak groves. And in that extract there, Socrates was saying that Zeus spoke, giving his prophecy through these sacred trees. Through the trees? Some say that the trees actually spoke. Jason, on his trip to go and find the Golden Fleece, he has used wood from the oak grove at Dodona and it talks to him. Yes. Yeah. So that's because oh, he used oak from the sacred grove at Dodona. Well, that's a good idea. So it's either Zeus talking through the trees or the trees themselves actually talking. Other sources say it's the sound of doves because that was a sacred bird at the site. Okay. Or the rustling of leaves that gave the prophecy. Or even acorns falling into bronze cauldrons causing a dinging sound. Well, there are a lot of bronze cauldrons in my <laughs> just in case. These noises would then be interpreted by priests. So it's, if it's not actually the gods speaking to you directly, the priest or priestess would interpret the various other methods of sound. Okay. If the wind blew and an acorn just fell into the bronze cauldron, but it wasn't the god, then we'd just ignore that. Just ignore that. Okay, fine. And the priest would know. The priest and priestess would know. Fine. The constant here, though, is sound. These are all methods of divination. The god is talking to you by various ways, but mm. they're all sound-related. Mm. All in this one sanctuary. Correct. Similarly to the laurel being sacred to Apollo, the oak was sacred to Zeus. Mm. So it makes sense that it would be his method of talking to people. His preferred comms. Even if the oak trees were creaking, have you ever been in the middle of a forest and yes. the trees, the rustling of the leaves and the creaking of the trees? So you can see where, where the idea that the trees are talking to you mm. kind of comes from. Yes. They're huge and they're creaking and they're swaying and it seems like they've been there for ages. And they are living things. And they're living, yeah, exactly. The it's very evocative. Again, the site of Dodona, because it was natural setting, the sanctuary had very few buildings at first. It was open air worship. In contrast to Delphi, where everything's kind of hidden, you go into the temple and then go down the stairs into the sacred cave or Aditon to talk to the Pythia. 
everything is done outside, under these oak trees. So as opposed to Delphi, which was quite political, it was used for political mm. questions and everyday questions, but there was that political bent to it. Yes. Dodona was used for private consultations. For example, there's a man called Evandros, who I'll read to you what he said. Gods, good fortune, Evandros and his wife inquire of Zeus, Nios and Dione by praying and sacrificing to what of the gods or heroes or supernatural powers they may fare better and more well themselves and their household, both now and for all time. It's a funny question, isn't it? He's mm. basically saying, Zeus and Dione, who should I pray to so that everything's great for me, for me and my household for the rest of all time? He's covering all the bases. And he's not praying to Zeus and Dione. He's saying, who should I pray to? Yeah, it's a bit cheeky. <laughs> but... The importance here is talking directly to the god. There's a hierarchy in divination, isn't there? It's watching birds, getting oracles, sacrificing animals and reading entrails. But if the god speaks directly to you, then there's no question. That's top there. quality. And that is why people would travel so far to go to these sanctuaries, spend a hell of a lot of money and time getting there. Turn yeah. up stinky. So even though the oracle mongers in Athens city centre were ten a penny, ten an obol. I just want to say one more thing about this. I found a really great thing that's going on. It's the Virtual Reality Oracle Project. Oh. And this group of researchers is putting together a virtual reality experience of what it was like to go and visit the site at Dodona. I can't wait. <laughs> Take a look at the website. Is it going to be open to the public? I believe so. We should put a link on the show notes. I will. Okay, over to me then for my second extract. Continuing with Plato. Continuing. This is Plato's Republic. And with this extract, I will be focusing on touch. The Republic is a dialogue about the ideal society, the makeup of it, and also how the people within it should behave. So just to give you a little bit of context before I start. This is from Plato's Republic, book five. All who were begotten at the time when their fathers and mothers came together will be called brothers and sisters, and these will be forbidden to intermarry. This, however, is not to be understood as an absolute prohibition of the marriage of brothers and sisters. If the lot favours them and they receive the sanction of the Pythian oracle, the law will allow them. Great! Goodness! <laughs> For the purposes of today, we won't dwell on the suggestion of incest. So just put that to one side. And think about touch. <laughs> we talked earlier about the Pythian oracle at Delphi, the tripod, the trying not to fall in it while she was high on fumes, all of the health and safety aspects therein. But there was another variety of divination that was carried out at Delphi, oracle by lot. This is what Plato seems to be referring to in this extract. Well, actually, the Pythian oracle, she only did it nine times a year. I know. So you only had nine days nine in days. which you could go specifically to talk to the god directly at Delphi. Because apparently Apollo liked to go on holiday to warmer climes in winter. But anyway, yeah. so when she wasn't on a tripod day, <laughs> you could get an oracle by lot. That's handy because you yes. don't know if you're hiking, you might not know on what specific day you're going to arrive. Yeah. And if you've had a journey by boat, you could have been thrown off course. There could have been all sorts of things that mean you miss the monthly day slot. 
Now, for the lottery oracle, a visitor would need to ask a question that only wants a yes or a no answer. So you can't get too elaborate here. There is only two options. And the Pythia would pick a stone from a container, perhaps a bag. The colour of the stone that she picked would indicate yes or a no. Okay, that sounds quite straightforward. Black or white, yes or no. I really liked this because so many oracles and divination methods are focused on what you hear or what you see. There's not very many that the first thing is what you feel, mm. right? So although, of course, they're drawing the stone out of the bag and they're seeing whether it's white or black, the first thing she's doing, the first kind of connection with the answer is her putting her hand in the container and touching a stone. It does sound like a much calmer, more low-key divination experience for the Pythia. She's probably a little bit thankful when she wakes up on a non-tripod day. I'm not going to sit on a dodgy stool inhaling dodgy rock fumes. The question that was in my mind was, could the Pythia play the system? Oh, I see. Yeah. So she's got the bag of stones. Could she feel? Could she feel? Because maybe... There is a stone that's a bit extra knobbly or something. And she's like, oh, it's, yeah, that one's that's right. the one. Yeah. And maybe she hears the question. Maybe she's having a good day or a bad day. Maybe she likes the person who's asking. Maybe she doesn't. And she's thinking, no, I'm going to give them that stone. And then the other thing I thought, and I'm not sure if I should admit this to you, that sometimes when we were young and we played <gasps> Scrabble and you know you just have to pick the, the letters out of the bag, the tiles out of the bag. Yes. Would you ever feel them to see what the no. letter was? Oh my gods. <laughs> I felt like this was a good time to admit that to you. <laughs> In this public setting. In this public setting. <laughs> Getting beans out of a bag or stones out of a bag kind of reminds me of rune stones in, you know, Norse mythology, oh, that kind of nice tarot, tactile yes. feeding of tokens. Quite pleasing. And also, you put your hand in there and you're running your fingers through them and they're all having a nice little clack around. Yes, the nice clacky sound. Yes. But what you say about the Pythia maybe choosing one deliberately, mm. I mean, I'm not saying that the god is corruptible, but the agents of the god may well be corruptible. The human agents could be corruptible, mm. right? You know, Delphi was known to have a kind of pro-Spartan slant to it. Yeah, and there were certainly treasuries at Delphi, weren't there, from the different city-states who would give offerings to Delphi. And basically, the more cash you gave, yeah. the more access cash you had. Questions. <laughs> yeah, the more access you had to the oracle. So, yeah, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. See, my Scrabble transgression pales into insignificance now. <laughs> Would you like to carry on the quiz tradition? Okay, I need to get my scores up, so let me just do some you stretching. Do, quiz stretching. Yeah. All right, I'm ready. Limber. There are five points available today. Question one. What was hydromancy? It's divination by water. Correct. One Bread. point. Bread specifically or just water? Just water. Okay. <laughs> Now, in hydromancy, if your bread floated, did that mean no, bad, or yes, good? It meant no, bad. Correct. You've got two points out of two. Okay, now, can you cast your mind back to my first extract, which was Aristophanes' play, The Birds? Yes. Apart from food and wine, what was the oracle monger trying to get for himself? He wanted sandals and a new cloak. Oh my word, you're on fire. <laughs> there were two points available there and you got them both one more question and this is for a full house question four with smoke divination 
What did it mean if the smoke hit the ground? Was it good or was it bad? I'm going to say bad. Correct! Actually, it meant it was going to be pretty catastrophic. Definitely didn't want your smoke to hit the ground. Just for future reference, good in smoke divination is a nice, neat plume of smoke heading upwards. Well, I had a lovely time for season two, episode one. What about you? I think Plato, Aristophanes and Euripides, even though he's in misery, did have a wonderful time with us too. Yeah, maybe later in the season, we should invite them to a drinking party. Great idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe not all of them. No. Well, we'll meet a few others in the coming weeks and make a short list. Deal? Deal. Okay. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please do take a moment to like, rate or subscribe wherever you downloaded this podcast. You can follow Sistery History on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Or why not email us with an episode request at sisteryhistory at gmail.com. Bye. Bye.